So, please turn on your Bible to the book of Acts. The Lord has put it on my heart to do a little, not the whole book of Acts, just the first couple chapters. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts, for me, are very uh, powerful, very wonderful. I feel a bit like a guest preacher in my own church, because I have been out quite a lot, but I been asking the Lord, I had something else planned, but so clearly the Lord spoke to me about the book of Acts. And so, as I'm planning on speaking about it, my wife says to me, oh, well, that's what the ladies' Bible study is on. I said, oh, I didn't know. She said, how can you not know? It's postal Lord of the church. I'm like, I I didn't know. I just didn't know. If you know me for five minutes, you know I'm not lying. And uh, then apparently, I think Cornerstone, they've been doing Acts. I'm like, I didn't know. So, there's obviously something that's in the Lord's heart for the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at it maybe a little bit different than what you're used to. And uh, this actually started about five years ago. The Lord spoke to me very clearly and told me, read the book of Acts. He actually gave me certain lenses, like look at it through these lenses. And I wrote them down, and a week went by, and I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I planned to do it. Intention was great. How many know good intentions? Yeah, I'm good at that. So, but I didn't do it. And the Lord spoke to me again. He just prompted my heart. He said, I really want you to study the book of Acts. So I said, all right. So then I'm in a prayer meeting about a week later. And one of the scariest prophetic moments, this lady, very prophetic lady who I respect in that arena, she comes up to me very quietly after the meeting and just says, can I speak to you? So I said, yeah. She says to me, the Lord has told you to study the book of Acts twice. And he wants to know why you haven't started. I said, oh, I'm going to start tonight. I'm going to start tonight. So I did that, and the Lord just started to open it up to me in a fresh way. And it's like a tonic. It's like something that does something to the heart when you go and you start to study and read the book of Acts and actually study it, not just read it. That's good. But look at what it actually means, what it meant for them, what is in the culture of the day. And as you do that, it's like it's, I don't know what it is. It seems to take a person's heart and re-engage it with the Lord. And I believe it's because in the book of Acts, we have to go again and again to it. Why? Because it's there that we see God's original intention for His church. What did He originally intend? And that's the baby church. And I know we've heard all this stuff. But if we're not walking in it, we need to go back and say, Lord, show us again. Move our hearts again. Teach us again. What did they know to be true? that maybe we don't. What did they believe? Why does it seem today, we all know this, that the activity of the Holy Spirit seems so far less, generally speaking, I'm not saying a specific church here or that church or this church, why does it seem generally less than what we see in the book of Acts? Why? Because the Bible says God's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't have favorites. What took these disciples from men who were arguing about who's the greatest, from all running away from Christ, Peter denying the Lord, to the book of Acts? What happened? So we're going to look at that. So I wonder if you could hold your Bibles with your finger in the book of Acts, and we're just going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I ask today that you begin to bring revelation to our hearts, conviction, Undo us in the Word and put a a hunger in our hearts for the things of God again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start by reading you two lists. They're offensive, maybe, to some of you. I don't know. Some of you may be like, yeah, 
but they're offensive, and I, it's kind of on purpose. But I, I'm not trying to just be negative or offend or point out things about the modern church or the Western church. I'm not just trying to be negative. I read these. I wrote these after a couple times of doing a deep study in the book of Acts, and I had to say to the Lord, all right, I'm going to put aside my preferences. I'm going to put aside what I would like. I'm going to put aside what I was taught. I was, I'm going to put aside things that were, in a sense, told to me growing up in the church. I was going to put aside all of that. I'm going to read it as if I've never read it before, and I'm going to read it understanding simply what does it say and how did they understand that according to their culture. That's it. And it was pretty alarming. And there was two questions the Lord put in my heart. What would shock the early disciples, or what would surprise them if, they came, if some of the leaders came back to the church today? If they just kind of showed up, Peter, James, John, Paul. Not the deep doctrinal, like right on the surface, the shallow stuff. What would instantly be like, oh, whoa, that's kind of different? That's the first question. And the second question is what heart attitudes or what positions or what beliefs even, what lenses did they have to which they looked at the world, at life, at God's people? So I'm going to read you two lists. I'm going to try to do this in just a couple minutes. I put these together. You may not agree with me. They're much longer than that. I just picked a few of this li- of a much longer list. But here we go. Let's see how many friends I can keep. What would shock or surprise early church leaders if they came back? Firstly, our reliance upon their writings, meaning the New Testament. And people are instantly like, okay, let's go. He doesn't like, no, I love the Scriptures. The New Testament is Scripture. Paul calls Peter's writing Scripture. Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture. It's Scripture. It's the, it's the canon totally. But they didn't have it. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. To them, that meant Old Testament according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. So, it is Scripture, absolutely, and I love the New Testament. Don't, all I'm saying is that there's such sometimes a reliance, they had to actually go to the old and dig out the truth of Christ, find Christ, and be able to go stand in the public square and prove that it was foretold and that it happened from the old. Hello. Secondly, titles. I think that would surprise them. How many, how many different types? It would be instantly different. And, and not even that we shouldn't have titles. In fact, the New Testament's full of titles. But I think they would be surprised at the Western church at the title pastor. I believe there are apostles and prophets today. I really believe that. I believe the prophets in the New Testament, I think there are... There are nine named prophets in the New Testament. So the prophets in the New Testament are not like the prophets in the Old Testament. But, and so the apostles in the New Testament, they are still apostles today, but they were a little different. They were building the foundation of the church. But we still have them today. There's a 25 or 26 named apostles in the New Testament. And a large portion of those were not eyewitnesses to the Lord. So all that stuff we've heard it's not what the Bible teaches. The Ephesians four gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, still for today. Absolutely. 
there's not a single, other than Christ, there's not a single named pastor in the New Testament. And if they arrived at the Western Church today, they would see that everywhere they go, it's pastor, 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 pastor. They would say, where are the apostles and prophets? That's interesting, isn't it? Thirdly, our holy days. Paul says they're fine if you can glorify the Lord through holy days, but a lot of his writings, he tried to get rid of them, saying it's all fulfilled in Christ. Fourthly, transfer growth. A transfer growth, meaning people go from this church to that. Transfer growth is considered growth. That would surprise them. That would surprise them. That's like a, heart, a knife to the heart. When I wrote it, I was like, oh, I don't like writing this. But they used to see it as a city church. So the church in a city only grew through people being saved, not through a group of people meeting here or meeting there and moving around. Five, the lack of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that today, God willing. That was absolutely everything to them. Number six, the breakdown of the family unit. Seven, the time delay between salvation and water baptism. Didn't exist in the New Testament. Got saved here, got baptized four years later. I'm not saying it's wrong, please love me still. But it just didn't exist for them. Remember, not cultural, not preferences, what, just plain text. And that healing and deliverance is only occasional. They understood it to be children's bread all the time. What were the pervasive attitudes? That would be, I think, a little surprising to them. What would be the pervasive attitudes? And these attitudes, these revelations, if you want to call them, are not something that you can say, okay, I'm going to do that. They are actually a very, very deep work of God in a human heart that you can't just decide. It's a process. So I read these not as, well, we need to do this or be better at this. Please understand, that's not my heart. But sometimes when we've heard them before, we arrive at that place on our walk with the Lord and, the, and you know, that's what so-and-so said. It's just helpful in our journey. What were some of the pervasive attitudes? And here, can we be open to this list? Hello? Some of you, okay. I forgive you so fast. So some of these uh, may throw us a little bit. Number one, what were the heart attitudes or positions? It's not about us. Individually, it was collective. It's not about us. It was about the kingdom. At times, there was such a fear of the Lord, it says that people wouldn't even dare join them. Try imagine that. This is in the New Testament. People wouldn't even dare join them. There was such a holiness and a fear of the Lord upon the church. So, but it was just never about them. Secondly, what were some of their lenses, their perceptions, is that knowing Christ colors the truth of the Scripture, not the other way around. Oh, that's a big one. What do I mean? They were all wrong. Pharisees, Sadducees, rabbis, they all got it wrong. They understood the Torah, the words, the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Proverbs. They had all of that. But when Jesus arrived, they couldn't see him. Think about that. And these disciples met Christ, and he had to basically teach them what they already knew. So they were all wrong. They knew it by heart, but with the wrong, not from heaven's perspective. And so they started to realize and see that, and everywhere they went, they would, in a sense, encourage a relationship with Jesus. It's the truth. It's the, it's the relationship with Christ that teaches us this. 
and then this teaches us Christ too. But their relationship with Christ colored their understanding of the Scripture, not the other way around. Next one, I don't know what number we're on. The truth of Christ was not adjusted or adapted to their culture whatsoever. Whatsoever. Think about it. They were Jews. The Jews were actually less than in a Roman ruling state. They were like less than people. And these were the ones turning the world upside down. There was a persistent Greek culture, Roman rule, and Jewish law. They didn't try to adapt it. So like, well, let's do it like this for them and like this for them. They just stood up and preached Christ. The same to everyone. And you know what? It worked. Amazing. Here we go. Number four. There was also no anger towards the Jewish temple system, the religious system of the day. There was no anger. The temple system had cut them off completely. They had no money. They were not allowed to join. That's where they would receive finances from. They were cut off completely. And they had no anger or animosity in their heart towards that system. They also, here we go, had no anger or animosity in their heart toward the ruling system, which was Rome. (laughs) They had absolutely no anger towards the political system, towards the ruling, governing state. None. They didn't try to deal with it. They didn't try to take it down. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be political. Of course I'm not. We should. And we should stand and fight and speak the truth when we need to. But how we do it matters. And why we do it matters. They had no anger with that. Go read the book of Acts. If you're offended at me, that's fine. Go speak to the Lord about it. But they also had no fear of punishment, pain, or death. So they could go and stand and speak in the public square, and if they got arrested, they were like, that's fine. They weren't going to start a march and a protest and this. That's fine. We're just going to sing, and then the prison walls will fall down. I know I'm being facetious, but that's what they did. And these things are deep parts of a person's heart. We use all these weapons the same as the world does, but then we expect the change. They didn't use any of that. I've got a whole list here about how many times, every time they were put in custody, then they were put before the, the, the Sanhedrin, then they were put, put before the council, then they were thrown in the common Roman jail with all the common criminals, then they were threatened to death, then they were mobbed and beaten, then they flayed their skin. That's what the word beaten means. They did all this, and they kept saying, this is an opportunity to preach. This is an opportunity to witness. This is a... And the Sanhedrin and even some parts of the Roman Council at that time heard the gospel three times because the people's perspective was, if I'm here, I'm here to witness. I'm not here to complain about why. How did I get here? And the priests started to turn around. And then they accused Stephen falsely. He didn't bring a court case against them. He said, I see the Lord standing in heaven. And a whole bunch of people got saved. The mind was so different. Five, let's move on from that one. They believed that they had the same power or person, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus had. And they weren't wrong. They demonstrated that they weren't wrong. Number six, their personal, here we go, and individual rights were seemingly irrelevant. 
Now, rights are good and important. The only time that Paul stood up for his Roman rights was when there was a baby church called Philippi that had just been planted and he didn't want the church to be affected, so he stood up for his rights to save the church. You need to stand up for your rights. I'm not saying don't do that. Don't let people walk over you. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just reading the text, putting all cultural preferences aside, saying I don't see that here. There was exorbitant generosity among the believers. They had to be completely self-funded. There was incredible generosity. Number eight, they focused on obedience. See, there was no flippancy with sin, not in a legalistic way. They were moving away from the entire culture of the, and, and the legalistic law. They were moving away from the law into freedom in Christ. But they had just witnessed and watched Jesus Christ live a sinless life. And they had just watched him, what it cost him to pay for their sin. I just think about that. They saw it. So they weren't flippant with it. It wasn't about how much I can do and get away with it. It was, I'm actually not interested in that. And it says and that the Holy Spirit was put in their hearts. The love of God was shed abroad in their hearts. And Romans 2 says, it says, and the law of God will be written on their heart. That doesn't mean he will come and write the Old Testament in your heart and you're back to the law. It means it'll go from a rule, fear of punishment if I disobey, to a change to de- desire. I don't do it because I'm afraid of what will happen if I do. I don't do it because I don't want to do it. So there was, there was such a clarity for them. Is There's deception down this path. I'm not interested in it. I saw what it costs, so I'm going this way. It was just simple, very simple. They had become convinced, number next, that it was not about an earthly kingdom. That's why they weren't over, trying to overthrow Rome. They had become convinced. They didn't start convinced. The first question that they asked in Acts, are you now going to return the kingdom to Israel? Like, can we be in charge again? That was the first question. Like, when can we rule? When can we, like, I can imagine Peter, like, I just want to kick a Roman so badly. I just, you know, just once, just, uh, I love you now. Just one time, Lord. He didn't say they were wrong. He said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons. But in other words, he said, he didn't say no, he just said not yet. You can think about that another time. But they had become convinced that it was not about an earthly kingdom, and therefore they employed no earthly means, and nor did they fight people. People are not their battle. And then unity was essential and actually possible. Think about what it was like when you have Greeks, some Romans, Greeks, Greek mythologists, Gentiles, Jews, proselytes, God-fearers, that was a type of person, all living together and sharing all their money. You think there was different cultures? We have Brazilians here, Colombians, yeah. Mexicans, yeah. Thank you. I had never eaten tacos. I had never eaten chips and salsa until I was 25, just so you know. I never knew it was a thing. Never heard about it, never thought about it. Africa just doesn't have a lot of that influence. And I moved here and I ate that. I was like, what is this goodness? This is so good. But all the different cultures, you put them together, they were so unified. It says they were in one accord, all the different cultures, because they had taken a hold of the kingdom. So 
So, we go to the book of Acts. Actually, go to Luke 24. Why Luke? Well, who wrote Acts? Luke, who was a doctor, and he wrote the book of Acts. He wrote it very carefully. He, it has been proven that he would have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, and many of the disciples. And he, through incredible interviews and a very precise as a doctor, he wrote the book of Acts. And please get out of your head the name, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. That was named by Saint Irenaeus in the late third century. It was not what Luke called it. And it has caused so much trouble over the years. The Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles do signs and wonders of a normal believer. Is, no. It was not that, which I'll show you in a moment. But... We're going to look at the first point at almost ending, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. The early focus in the book of Acts and the end of Luke was all the Holy Spirit. Let's go read Luke 24, verse 34 to 53. He says, Then he said to them, Jesus speaking, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Imagine that. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now, what did I just say earlier? They had just come out of it when they realized we were all wrong. These untrained fishermen, Jesus fulfills all the wisdom literature, the Torah, the Psalms, the pro all of that. He fulfills it. And then he goes, in a sense, and opens their mind, this is after he was resurrected, so that they can comprehend the Scriptures. They, for the first time, were a group of people that suddenly saw Scripture through heaven's eyes. Do you think they were excited? I do. It says that. He says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And you know that this alone, there is a life of God just from this. It's like a faucet that you can open. And as you read the Scriptures and then God gives, gives you understanding, it has its own incredible life to it. It's God life. But even after that, what does he say? Wait for the Holy Spirit. The first group of people to understand the Scriptures from the right perspective, with the right lens, he showed them Psalms, Proverbs, I've fulfilled everything. This is me, this is me, this was talking about me, this is talking about me. Now I'm here, now I've done it, now I've rose again. Let me give you heaven's perspective. Wow! He says, but, but you need the Holy Spirit. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father, not a promise, the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The Scriptures had just been opened to them, and he says, wait, and I will send you the promise. They knew immediately what he was talking about. The Scriptures had just been opened to them. Joel chapter 2, the promise, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. How do I know that? Because the first thing that happens when it happens, Peter stands up and he says, this that you see is that, Joel chapter 2. 
his mind had been opened to understand the Scriptures, and he stands up and begins to say, this promise is that. It's the Spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh because Jesus has settled everything in the high court of heaven. This is actually what happens. That word endued, by the way, means to sink into. It's like clothing. It actually, to sink into your clothes. It's actually similar to the word baptism. To sink into. You will be endued. You will sink into the Holy Spirit. In verse 50, and he says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he, he was parted from them and, and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. For a Jewish man, by the way, you only worship God. Just in case the enemy ever says to you, well, did the disciples actually think that Jesus was God? Well, not in the beginning, but here it says they worshipped him. A Jewish man only worships God. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now, go to Acts 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, we just read this in Luke, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. He's like, I've already told you about this. When did he tell them about that? In the upper room discourse, which... God willing, we'll get to next. He says, which you have heard from me. Before John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Still the political focus. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive, and I love that own authority, because he's saying, not even I know when I'll come back, when that'll happen. That's the one thing that only the Father knows. He's already pointing to that. And he says, but you shall receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And we know if you draw it on a map, it's like this. If you draw a circle, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, it's like ripples. We, we all know that. So he starts by saying the former account I made, O Theophilus. The first thing I want to show us is the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which became Scripture, was done by one man for one person. I, have, I asked the Lord to put that kind of heart in my chest. We am so passionate about what the Lord has done that all these years of work, all these interviews... For one man, to see one man saved. The book of Luke starts almost excellent Theophilus. He was probably a high-ranking official, but Luke had given himself to pray this man into the kingdom. So he presented him these incredible letters, which became Scripture by the Holy Spirit, for one man. 
That just wrecks me every time. And then he says, of all that Jesus did. No. Of all that Jesus began, both to do and to teach. Why does it say that? Do you ever ask yourself that? Like, why does he say that? I do. Every sentence, I'm like, why? It offers a lot of revelation when you ask questions like that. Because Jesus is still alive, he's still doing, and he's still teaching. And he's saying, listen, everything that I'm about to write is the continuation of what Jesus is still doing and still teaching. That's why I don't call the book of Acts. I've actually taken it out of my Bible. The Acts people are like, whoa, here we go. He's scratching out the Bible. No, not the Scripture. The title, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke never called it that. Based on that part of the Scripture, he was saying, Theophilus, I have called the book of Acts the continuation of the Acts of God through ordinary people. Through ordinary people. That is actually what Acts is about. And why does it say do and teach? Because before his resurrection, Jesus used miracles for those who didn't believe in his teaching. He would stand and teach. Now, what does it show us? If Jesus was standing and teaching, there would have been such authority in the room. Who knows that? The sense of just absolute perfection and authority. And yet there will always be those, no matter how incredible an atmosphere is, that are spiritually dull. Even Christ standing and teaching. And people be like, nah, don't believe him. Other people be like, can't you sense the authority? No. So he said, if you don't believe me, go look, John 6, John 10. Believe in the, in the miracles. There were people, when Jesus would teach, they'd be like, nah. So, all right, believe in the miracles. That's why it's do and teach. But then he said, he commanded them not to depart, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me about. Now, when did they hear from him about this promise? So that was all <clears throat> the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Everything we just covered. Jesus is communicating to them, I will open the scriptures to you. I will die, I will rise again. I will deal with sin and death. I will offer freedom from uh, through remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. I will do all of this that we just read. He said, but you will need the Holy Spirit. It is, He is the essential ingredient. It is absolute necessity. Do not do anything. Do not preach. Do not do anything. Even with your now understanding of the Scriptures, which no one else at that time had, do nothing until you receive the Holy Spirit. The necessity of the Holy Spirit is a major focus in the first part of the book of Acts, and the church misses it today. So, let's look at the introduction of the Holy Spirit. You guys with me? John 14, we'll go through this really quickly. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6 to 17, it'll come up behind me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And now you have, uh, and from now on you have known him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. 
Philip obviously didn't know that no one can see the Father and die, and no one can see the Father's face and live. So Jesus, you know, it's like, mm, yeah, you don't want that. But he says, uh, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Remember that. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. You see how it goes from words to works? The words I speak are not mine. I live in submission to him. I say what he says. And that takes my words and makes them into signs and wonders. Because I don't speak my opinion. I speak his. Do you see that? Is it just me that gets excited about that? I was like, wow, when I saw that. Do you not believe that, uh, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly I say to you, he believes in me, the works that I do he will also do, and the greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. You need to be saved, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. He dwelt with them as God's people in Israel. They had seen him. They had seen his works, seen his effects, but he didn't live in them yet. He says, for you know him, for he dwells with you. He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Very important verse. I will, you see it there, verse 18? Didn't make it up. Who's ever heard, you know, every verse you've got to read it in context, yeah? I was taught that that is about Jesus saying, when, he, when I come back, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That is not what it means. The context there is he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, when I send upon you the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, it is him who will teach you sonship. It is him who will teach you what it means to be part of God's family. That's why in Romans he's called the spirit of adoption. That's why in Romans it says it is the spirit who cries out, have a father. He said, I won't leave you as orphans. Not just talking about when I come back, I'll come here back and get you, but you're going to be orphans the whole time until then. That's stupid. That's not God. That's stupid. He's saying, no, I'm going to send you my spirit. The promise of my Father, and it is Him who will teach you what it means to be a son and a daughter of God, of Yahweh. He will give you the experience of sonship. He will teach you who I am. And He says, the words I speak, I do not speak on my own authority. Why is that so important? He just let them know. The words I speak, I don't speak on my own authority, and that's why it is the Father in me who does the works. Then He said, I'm going to send you the promise of my Father. He's telling them, how I do that is who I'm sending you. How I do these things 
Not by my divinity. I do it as a man. I don't have the time to get into this. But we will, in the Acts, oh, we're going to get into it. I do this as a man filled by the Spirit in submission to the Lord. My dad used to say, rightly related to God and anointed by the Spirit. That's how Jesus operated. And he said, I'm going to send you who I had. It's actually very exciting. Then he says, he who believes in me, the works I do, and people love that verse. Oh, we'll do greater works, greater works. They quote it, they do a little dance. But why? He said, the works I do, you will greater works. Why? He says, because I go to the Father. That's why. He told us. He says, you will do these. Why? Because I go to the Father. Because he said to them, I cannot send the Holy Spirit until I leave. So in their mind, he said, I cannot send you, for I cannot send the Holy Spirit until I send to the Father. In their mind, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, it was not a, oh, we need to trust God for the power. Oh, we need to press in. Oh, it was just given. It was just, yeah, that's what the Holy Spirit does. This is what he does. We've seen it for years with Christ. And he's telling us that's the promise of the Father, the Father in him who does the works, and he's going to send us the same one. Okay. Settled. Okay. And somehow the church has gotten away from that. It's so simple. And Jesus, I, you can throw up the verses behind me. Look at this emphasis, John 14, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom the Father will send, I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. John 16. Now I go away to him who sent me. None of you ask me where I'm going. But don't be troubled. I will send him. I will send him. I'm sending him. I'm sending you someone. I'm sending you someone. This is all John 13 to 17. One conversation the night before he died. And all he speaks about, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you, I'm sending you, I'm going to send you. He's coming, I'm going to send you. He's coming. The one I have, how I did that? He's coming, he's coming. I'm going to send him, I'm going to send him. He's saying, guys, you've got to get this. Because there will come a day on the earth where even my ministers will tell you that it's not for you. And it is. And he says, and I want you to tell every born-again believer it's for them too. What does Peter do on the day of Pentecost? He stands up and he says, this gift is for you and your children and all who are afar off, meaning they're not saved yet. But when they get saved, this is for them too. Because of this conversation. When he said to them, I will give you, we'll have to end with this, I will give you another helper. You know what that word means, another? Guess. It means another. Look at this, genius. It actually in the Greek means another of the same sort. He's telling them, everything I was to you, he will be to you. Please understand this. It's this honestly, this one thing revolutionized my life. Jesus walking with the disciples, he strengthened them. He taught them. And it's so easy for us to understand, especially watching the chosen. We can see it. He, he gave them power and authority over, 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 the, over the demons, over, over sickness. He gave it to them. They didn't earn it. He gave it to them. 
He taught them. He encouraged them. He loved them. He strengthened them. He showed them what the Father was like. And then he comes and says, there I have to go, but I will send you another helper of the same sort. He will be to you everything I have been to you. And he spends four chapters telling them, he will be your helper. He will be your comforter. He will guide you. He will speak to you. He will teach you all things. He will not speak on his own authority, just like he didn't with me. He will only speak what he hears from the Father. He will be to you everything I've been to you. So when the disciples messed up and did this and argued and did stupid stuff, Jesus didn't bring out the whip and you stupid. He loved them through it. He taught them through it. And they understood that that's how the Holy Spirit is. Please hear me. He's not just a sanctifier. He's not just here to make you look like Jesus. Yes, he is. But that's not just who he is. Do you know he wants to be your friend? He wants to teach you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to encourage you. When you mess up, he wants you to go to him and say, Holy Spirit, help me. Okay. And they knew it here because that's who Jesus was to them. And now they're saying, he's saying, he will be like me. He is the one. I gave you power over the, over the enemy, over sicknesses. Now he will give it to you. So go to Jerusalem and wait, and you will receive power, just like I gave it to you, but now it's going to come from him. It's that simple. The Holy Spirit is everything to us. We have to understand when we see this. You know, Catherine Coleman, she was a bit strange. I think she was an amazing woman of God, a true general of God, but she, was, she did strange things. But she used to call the Holy Spirit a best friend. Best friend. People are like, oh, you know, it's not like Jesus is your homeboy. Like, no, he's king. I get it. There's, of course, awe and respect. But the Holy Spirit, he's God, yes. But he's with you as Jesus was with them. And it's not just for power. It's not just to perfect you. It's for everything. For everything. He's with you. He wants the best for you. You can talk to him about anything. First time when I was in Africa, Keir Taylor, a great evangelist, he operates in power and he's he asked a bunch of us, we were all young, I was 22 at the time, and he said, who wants, we were in the middle of Mozambique, and he said, who wants to learn to pray for the sick? And I'm like, man, this guy's going to give me secrets, because I watched him heal the sick the night before. I'm like, me. He says, great, everyone who wants to learn to pray for the sick, come with me. I'm like, oh, special group, I'm like Peter, I'm the greatest. <laughs> you know, stupidity. And we get in the car, he takes us to the hospital and drops us off. He says... I'll pick you up at five o'clock. <laughs> well, that's great. I didn't want that. And I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, it's okay. The Holy Spirit in you knows what to do. He's been around for every miracle that ever happened. Simple. So, 
Oh, boy. So then Jesus goes to the grave. The cross, the grave, resurrection, I'm making light of it. And then 40 days later, after that conversation with him, Acts 1-4. It says, wait for the promise of the Father. You've heard me speak about him. But now wait. And then he ascends. 40 days have gone by from the conversation, the introduction to the Holy Spirit. He had told them the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends before them, blessing them as he ascends with the last instruction, do nothing until you receive the Holy Spirit. But it's like, I can imagine Peter, well, Jesus, you forgot. I think you forgot. Because just the other day, you, when you came and you appeared in the room and freaked us all out, you breathed on us and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think you forgot about that. We already have him. No, Jesus breathed on them in John 20 and said, receive the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. He breathed life into them like God breathed life into Adam. And he said, this is the new life. This is a new creation. This is me making your heart new. This is me making you born again. This is me breathing the new creation. You are changed in here. You are a new person in here. But wait until you receive power from on high. That's different. So, they wait. Can I quickly read this to you? I guess I'm not asking you. I'm going to do this fast. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, I will cover this again next week, so just quickly. There's 120 people in a room. Think about this. They've been told to wait. There's 120 people in there. The Bible says that Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. I've often wondered, the Bible says in Corinthians, in his post-resurrection appearances, he appeared to 500. I've often wondered if there were 500 in that room, and as the days went on, it dwindled to 120 just like it would in a church. I don't know that we can prove that. If that's true, it would be tragic to me. But there's 120 people there, a lot of them women, which wasn't culturally okay. One of them, Mary, the mother of Jesus, his own brothers, and like half-brothers, and they're all there. And then suddenly a sound happens. Please understand, the Bible says there was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Who's ever heard that a tornado or a hurricane sounds like a train, right? I believe it was like that. There's the sound that comes from heaven, which is probably like a train, or it's a loud sound. There was no wind. Since there was a sound, as of a mighty rushing wind, there appeared tongues as of fire. There was no fire. There was something supernatural that they were seeing with their eyes, and the only description they had was it looked like fire. But in the Old Testament, the fire of God would come from heaven 
only upon corporate events. <laughs> only the fire of God would come upon the sacrifice or when it filled the temple. Now they see the fire of God with their eyes open but sitting over individuals. They go, wait a minute, that's not allowed. That means that that's a, that's a temple. Fire of God only comes upon a temple. That, that's, but it's, upon, it's just upon that individual and then another one upon the, another one upon another. In Jewish mind, they're like, so I'm a temple? They didn't have New Testament. They didn't have Paul going, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. They were like, I don't know what this means. But there's a sound. The sound was so loud that verse 6 says the multitudes, and that means there's a lot, probably a couple thousand. There's all these thousands of people that have come in for the feast, one of the Jewish feasts, that it causes them to stop what they're doing and go to where the sound is. That's what it says. Verse 6, the sound was so loud. You know, you're pushing the stroller, you're going for a walk. There's a sound from nothing that is so loud that everyone stops what they're doing and goes to see, what is the sound? And they hear people speaking in languages that they've never understood before. And then you see two groups of people, those that mock. You know, people have said, because they were stumbling around, that's why they thought they were drunk. The Bible doesn't say they were stumbling around. Don't insert stuff. The people that mocked them were, were the locals. They didn't understand the foreign languages, so they just thought they were babbling incoherently. They're like, well, they're drunk. That's why they, they weren't stumbling around. We'll get into that next week. But Jesus made them understand. And we only read like eight, eight verses in the book of Acts. But we have to understand that the book of Acts, the first at least eight chapters, it was the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life. You can't. You can't without an actual relationship with the Holy Spirit. You can't. It'll just be miserable. And Jesus makes them understand that. He tells them again, I'm sending him, I'm sending him, I'm sending him. Now today, he's already come. Man, we could just go into ministry just like, just like that right now. Just the presence of the Lord in the room. He's already come. And some people get into a position of begging him to do what he's already done. But we can learn to partner with him. But he lives in you. Please don't think he's there to trap you, catch you. He's not heaven's spy. Run and tell Jesus, do you know what he's doing? He's there to help you. Can I end with a story? I had the privilege, honestly an absolute privilege, of going to speak to a politician from another country 
uh, senator, or congresswoman actually, and her husband, which was under the president. And they asked me to come and speak to them as a couple, and so I ended up doing that. And this man was a general, a five-star general. And I just could see in prophetically some of the stuff he had done when he was a young man in war. Terrible things. And, but he had to do them. And, you know, you know when you've had to do awful things in war and how it affected him. And he was, this guy was scary. I was scared of this guy. So I'm like, uh. <laughs> So I said, well, sir, I see what you did when you were younger. I saw what you did in war in my head. And he looked at me. <laughs> I could think, like, either I'm going to die or he's going to cry or I'm just going to cry. Not because of the Lord. I was just afraid. And he looked at me and he, in another language, I don't know what he said. He wasn't happy. And I just said to him, sir, what I'm saying to you is true. And he said, yes. And I said, and then, you know, the Lord gave me a picture of a man. I said, there's a man, he looks like this and so forth. And he said, yes. I said, he's coming after you legally. And he swore loud, in the restaurant. And I was like, okay. So I said, well, you know, this is what the Lord says you must do in order to prepare for that. And I looked at him and I said, do you know that God um, wants you, God wants to help you with what I'm talking about? He wants to help you. He looked at me as if I was insane. Seriously. He said, no, he doesn't. I said, yes, he does. He said, and eventually it's like he, he just softened. And he looked at me and I grabbed his hand, which was bold. I was like, oh, please don't chop it off or whatever. I grabbed his hand and I said to him, sir, look at me. I said, God, he wants to help you, but he wants you to ask him. And he looked at me and he said, and then he had a tear. And he said, God will help me with what I've done. Uh-huh. But he wants you to ask him. And we went outside the restaurant and I got to lay hands on that man with tears and ask for God to come into his heart and help him. Friends, the Holy Spirit, he wants to help you. But he wants you to ask him because he wants a relationship. Amen? So that is... Uh, sort of intro. We're going to look at the book of Acts for the next few weeks. Can we pray? Why don't we stand? Father, we thank you for your spirit. Lord, I ask for revelation and I ask for simplicity. Let it be simple. You have given us of your own spirit It's that simple. And for that we thank you. Holy Spirit, we long for you to move in our midst. But I also long for you to move upon our hearts. That's sometimes such a greater thing. To soften a hard heart, to heal a hurt heart, to open a closed heart, to convict a hard heart. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move upon our hearts so that we can remember who you are and that you actually want to partner with us to see a city turned upside down, to see a family turned upside down.
to see a government change, to see any, whatever your desire is, we are your vessels. In Jesus' name, amen.